Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. We shot around at City Park, and I only brought one ball, so I let him shoot while I rebounded. Jeffrey was a good basketball player, but he lacked confidence in his shot. Put your elbow underneath your shot, I said. He lined up his feet just in front of the three-point line and squared his shoulders. He took the ball in his shooting hand and tucked his elbow under it. Like this? He asked. Yeah, I said. Gardenstown has been known for high school basketball. We won our first state championship in the early 70s and followed that up by at least two championships in each decade following. My dad and my uncles played, Ian and I played, and Jeffrey would play. It was what we did. Most men will remember a certain play that had been a turning point in their final four game, but the same men would forget their wedding anniversary. Conversations at the fish hook or the griddle or even Cuddy's would turn to Gardenstown basketball when left unattended. It was how we found commonalities with each other. Basketball was how we were known and how we learned to know ourselves. Jeffrey shot the ball, arcing it towards the rim, and it went straight through the net. The golden boy of Gardenstown basketball was Pedro Watts, who graduated in 94. His mom, Maura Patino, was a small-statured Latina immigrant who worked down at Fabian Moore's factory. Early in her tenure there, she got the eye of the maintenance man, Moses Watts. Moses was a local black man, wise with a wrench, and wiser still with women. The two never would marry, but they moved in together after the birth. Pedro had his mom's work ethic and his father's physique, and when paired together, they made a man born for the hardwood. Pedro's stats and height progressed each year. It was best that he didn't hit his growth spurt till after he'd learned to play guard, because it allowed him to grow in the intangible skills of ball handling and passing. By his senior year, he had grown to 6 feet 7 inches and had averaged over 30 points a game. After he'd won his second state championship, he committed to the state college where he excelled on the court and with the sororities. During his sophomore year of college, half a dozen girls claimed to be pregnant by him. Pedro continued to excel on the court amidst the growing tumult off of it, and when he had a chance to enter the NBA draft, he took it. He was the 34th pick in the second round by the Cleveland Cavaliers, but never would play a game. His signing bonus went to the women with the children, and what he had left went up his nose. He lives down the street from me now, in trailer number seven. Keep that up, I said. Good shot. He took a dribble with each hand and shot again, but missed. Did you play ball? Jeffrey asked. I caught the rebound and bounced it back to him. Yeah, I said. Jeffrey steadied himself for another shot and placed his right elbow parallel with his chest. His left hand steadied the ball and his shoulder lifted, and his elbow hinged and his wrist snapped forward lifting the ball in an arc, and it fell right through the net. Damn good shot, Jeffrey, I said and threw it back to him. Were you any good? At a time, I responded. As a freshman, I was first off the bench and was scoring about nine a game. I really enjoyed it back then, but stuff started to come up. He shot the ball again, but this time it missed wide right, and the ball bounced down off the concrete court and traveled down towards the light pole and the tennis courts of City Park. I chased it down the small grade and slipped in the low spot in the grass. I sprung back up and jogged to the court and threw the ball back to him. What stuff? Asked Jeffrey as he stopped dribbling and took a hard swallow. The weather was nice that early fall day. The air was sweet, with the moisture that comes from retiring summer air meeting an early autumn chill, and the leaves on the trees surrounding the basketball court had just begun to change color in response. Some still held on to their youth, remaining two-thirds green with only a hint of red, while others were mostly yellow or orange. Fall is a time when the Midwest shines and when Gardenstown becomes alive because the season of basketball is just beginning.
My mom and dad started to have problems, I said. I took it hard and started to pay attention to that instead of basketball. When did they divorce, he asked. Jeffrey had never known his grandma and grandpa to be together. The same year you were born, I said. I bounced the ball back to him, but my pass fell short in front of him and he stopped it with his foot. He stood with his foot on top of the ball and looked down at the bandage on his left wrist. Did you ever? He asked. He looked down at the bandage and didn't look back up. I did, I said. He then passed the ball to me. What made you do it? Jeffrey asked. I bounced the ball and then dribbled it through my legs and threw it back to him. I had a pain building up inside me, I said, and I needed to release it. Jeffrey held the ball in his hands. He stared at the lettering as he spun it. The grip felt chalky against his clammy fingers. He looked up at me and finally felt understood, but he didn't trust the feeling. Solidarity was unfamiliar to him and he doubted it. What he knew, and therefore what he trusted, was isolation. Your dad cares about you, I said. He asked me to talk to you. Really? He passed the ball back to me, but it went wide left, and as I backpedaled to chase it down, my heel caught the part of the basketball court where the concrete had cracked and settled, and I fell about three feet on my back. Walking to the court, I felt a dull pain on the back of my ankle. You're bleeding, Jeffrey said. I looked down to see the blood was pooling in my sock. Is that a cut? Jeffrey asked. The world is a simpler place in our youth when our heroes are still infallible. If at four years old we were told the reality of Santa Claus, we would simply reject it. Because our faith then is much bigger than our unbelief. Why then do the years jade us? Decades separate us from our childhood, and anything that was believable before begins to carry an aura of uncertainty. But why is it that we let the bad experiences blind us from what is good in the world? I, I did that at work, I said, knowing that I lied to him and myself. The calm came back to Jeffrey's face at my response and he bounced the ball again. I, I was working on my truck, I said. When I fell, I must have torn open the scab. Off the highway, in the distance, some boys on bicycles came in and headed towards the court as Jeffrey steadied himself for another shot. He dribbled twice, spun the ball in his hands and swung the ball forward as his elbow steadied and launched it towards the goal. At the end of his release, his eyes left the basket as he saw the boys on the bikes. In a subconscious response, his wrist cocked and changed the ball's trajectory, causing it to travel far to the left of the hoop. Dismounting his bike by the cottonwood tree, Roger caught the ball off the bounds and jogged to the court with it in his hands. Can we go, Johnny? Jeffrey asked with a look of fear on his face. Nice shot, said Roger as he stepped onto the court. Max and Al followed close in behind him. Johnny, we need to go, Jeffrey said. I had seen this boy's face before. You got your pants on today, Roger said. Shut up, Roger, Jeffrey responded. Last time we saw you, you were naked from the waist down, said Max as he high-fived Al. Roger's authority grew as his backup began to build their stance against Jeffrey. What did you say to me, Roger said. You ain't gonna talk to me like a little bitch. Well, Roger stomped on the ground, and a snarl came to his face. Another, older face flashed before me in memory. I grabbed the scuff of his neck and pulled him back from Jeffrey. Hold a minute, son, I said. Your name's Roger? He was a big kid, but he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. Yeah, butthead, he responded. Get off me. Your last name's Steinmetz? I asked. Yeah, what of it? It then came back to me. Your dad's name Roger, too? Yeah, he said. You writing a book? I went to school with Roger Steinmetz Sr. at St. Michael's. In the seventh grade, he was a head taller than any other boy and had 50 pounds on the next. 
I still have scars on my back from when Roger Sr. would follow me into the small upstairs bathroom of the school and kick me in the back with the heel of his cowboy boot. The teachers knew about the way I was bullied, and I suffered in silence until one day. I tried to hold my bladder till the end of that day, but I couldn't keep it in any longer. I walked the slow march from Mrs. Jones' homeroom past the library and took the right turn to the bathroom. When I zipped up my pants in the stall, the bathroom door opened and I heard the click of his boots. You in here, bitch? He asked. I improvised and grabbed the lid off the toilet's tank and held it firmly in my two hands. And when he opened the stall door, I swung the porcelain lid towards his face. When he was found on the floor of the bathroom, he got blamed for the damage and wasn't asked about his broken nose nor the blood on his face. I went to school with your dad, I said. He acted like you until he didn't. Roger Steinmetz Sr. had gotten his girl pregnant during his freshman year in high school. She was a senior who hadn't been asked to prom, and since that night they had been together ever since. He lived off her ambition and salary, as the Steinmetz men had a habit of hitting their peak in junior high, and it was only downhill from there. How's your dad doing, I asked. Still unemployed? The last time I had seen him, it was down at Geno's. He rode a motorized cart with an orange safety triangle on the back and had a 64-ounce soda in his hand with a cheap cigarette in his mouth. He is disabled, Roger stated. Oh, I said. It's a bad lot for a 28-year-old. Hurt his back down at the factory, he responded. I remembered hearing about his accident at Fabian Moore's factory, but things hadn't changed for the Steinmetz men. Living on disability was still getting him what he needed from other people. Bullying builds up the self-confidence in a false manner by taking it from someone else. Roger took it from Jeffrey, as his dad took a living from the rest of us. A man's most basic desire is to create himself and there are different avenues and degrees for it. Some men are completely fulfilled by working a job and are satisfied with doing that to the best of their ability. Others, who could be called the great men, don't settle for their day job. Instead, they take the dreams that they had as boys and turn them into their reality. As they age, their lives may become an altered version of what they had planned. But the great men continue to dream throughout their life. On the contrary, take a man who hasn't fulfilled his life, and you'll see either a wife beater, a drunkard, or a Steinmetz. The look on young Roger's face as he felt the hollowness of his life troubled me, and I walked to him and put my hand on his shoulder. The touch and the acceptance was new to Roger. Never before had he had acknowledgement, and the idea that he didn't have to follow in his dad's footsteps was new to him. I led him over to the cottonwood tree where his bike sat. Bullying doesn't get you anywhere, I said. You don't get friends from it, people don't like you for it, and it doesn't make you tough. The devious smile that had become all too familiar to him returned to his face. But, he said, I get respect, and my dad says that's what's important. Twelve years old is an important age. It's a time when the clay of our soul first begins to harden, and therefore begin to form. Respect is what you want? I asked. Roger nodded, wrinkling his face. Then get out of here, I said. I walked to Roger and put my finger in his chest. Figure out what you have going on in here. I said, and fix it. Don't take it out on my nephew, Jeffrey. Roger took hold of his bike and mounted it, and the other two boys followed his lead. As they pedaled away, I walked back to Jeffrey on the court. You ready? asked Jeffrey. You have to make your last shot before we go, I said. He took the ball in his hands and dribbled to the hoop until he was at the free throw line and took a shot, but missed. I grabbed the rebound and passed it back to him. We can just go, he said. Jeffrey passed it back to me. Take another one, I said, and I passed it back to him and ran ahead of him towards the opposite goal. 
He threw it ahead to me, and we passed it back and forth until Jeffrey held the ball in his hands 15 feet out on the opposite wing. He looked down at the ball in his grip and looked up to the basket and then back to me. You don't need to wait around for me to make one, he said. Believe in yourself, Jeffrey, I said speaking as much to him as myself. The trees on the hill to the south rustled with a cool breeze. The road that ran through the park and past the second shelter house and around the corner and up the winding hill towards the city pool was empty. It was only Jeffrey and I left in the park. It was his moment as much as it was mine. He steadied his feet and squared his shoulders, bouncing the ball twice before he placed it on his right wrist. His shoulder and elbow and wrist worked in harmony as he shot the ball through the hoop. Leaving the park, we headed to O'Malley's Drive-In on the east side of town. I drove up Town Hill and around Smith's Corner past the houses that sprinkled the road. Just beyond the Gardenstown High School, we pulled in the circle drive of the diner and parked next to O'Malley's old black van. I opened the door for Jeffrey, and we were greeted by the sweet familiar smell of grease, cigarettes, and old building must. Take a seat, O'Malley said. I'll be right with you. We took to two red cellophane stools in front of the counter, and Earl sat across the way in the middle booth. He was an old, single man that was a mainstay at O'Malley's. He was both short and skinny, and his hair was the same way Vietnam had left it. He shuffled his feet when he talked, and walked with a bad lisp. He'd nursed the bottomless cup of coffee all day while he did the St. Louis Post-Dispatch crossword puzzle. I grabbed the local Gardenstown, Missourian paper from the stack below the counter and scanned through it. O'Malley came around from the back and approached the counter, and as he stood, he wiped his hands clean on the towel that hung from his waist. He was a thin man, through the chest and arms, but had a belly of a woman in the third trimester. His hair was thin, and he covered the patchy scalp with a local Gardenstown Yellow Jackets hat. Glasses sat on the end of his nose, which magnified his small black eyes and made them appear like old buttons. The O'Malley family had owned the diner for three generations, and it held a special place in Gardenstown history. The diner was a place to go for weekend breakfast, weekday lunches, and snacks after basketball games. O'Malley's was where I first bought Lori a meal. What'll it be? O'Malley asked. I'll take a burger and cheese balls, Jeffrey said, with a chocolate milkshake. O'Malley nodded in reception and looked to me. Make it two, I said. Easy enough, said O'Malley as he went back to work at the large stainless steel griddle. In the paper, I saw an article about the upcoming basketball season. I looked to see that O'Malley was looking in my direction and searching for a conversation. This Watts boy is Pedro's, right? I asked. His oldest, O'Malley said with light in his eyes. He's it too. Just now a sophomore and already above the rim. He put in 15 plus a game last year. You think he'll bring another state run? I asked. O'Malley stepped away from the grill and strolled to the counter. He lifted his cap and held it in his hand, only to put it back on top of his head. It's a thinking gesture used by most men in Gardenstown. It's a way to signify that a man needs time to scratch up the words to say about an important topic. Even women who don't wear hats use it when they talk about basketball. I'd bet the drive-in on it, he said. And if a Watts boy don't do it, we still got the Carmen boys. He smiled, and he went back to work at his griddle. He took the cheese balls from the freezer behind him and emptied two bags into the fry basket, dunking them into the steaming hot grease. I began to be overwhelmed with the idea of helping Jeffrey and fought the feeling that I needed to force conversation. I wanted to help him with his problems, but I didn't want them to be what he focused on. Dr. Healer had told me that when my panic attacks began that I needed to focus on my breath. My veins grew tense and my heart began to beat through my head. My temples throbbed and the room began to close in on me. I needed air. He told me that my body was protecting itself from a perceived threat. 
I breathed in deeply and tried to return my focus to the present. If there was no threat there that day, then did I provide my own hostility? Jeffrey straightened up in a stool at the counter. His face, that naturally rested into a frown, changed upwards towards a smile. You all right, Johnny? He asked. <clears throat> I cleared my throat and said, I'm good. O'Malley came in with our plates, holding one in each hand. Here you go, O'Malley said. Burgers and cheese balls, my specialty. I raised my hand. Are milkshakes? I asked. He brought them to the counter and looked over to the man behind the newspaper in the corner. You need any coffee, Earl? Asked O'Malley. I'm good, Glenn, answered Earl. O'Malley took the pause as an opportunity for a break, and he untied the white apron from around his waist and hung it up on the hook by the exhaust fan. He came around on our side of the counter and sat down by me on the last stool. His legs faced out and extended away from the kitchen towards the door. How's your dad? O'Malley asked me. Good, I said, not taking my eyes off my plate. O'Malley's drive-in made their cheese balls homemade. Cheddar cheese was cut into cubes, and then dipped into an egg mixture, and then in fresh breadcrumbs. I hadn't seen Donnie much since he became a preacher, he said. He doesn't exactly run in the same circle anymore, I responded. I didn't have a problem with my dad becoming a preacher. What bothered me was how he acted as if the people of his past were the problem in his life. He distanced himself from his family and his old friends and instead focused solely on his congregation. O'Malley crisscrossed his feet and put his hands behind his head. Your mother comes in here on Tuesdays, he said. She gets a grilled chicken sandwich and a pack of cigarettes. I looked out the glass door and across the road to the apartments where she lived. Oh yeah, I said. O'Malley spun around on a stool and asked, What about you, Johnny? You still working for your grandpa? For nine years now, I answered. You know, I always thought it'd be fun to be a truck driver, he said. Get to travel like that, just you and the open road. True freedom. People said that. The freedom's what they saw. They had no idea of the loneliness and the feeling that a driver truly doesn't belong anywhere. A sense at home is only a temporary place that you stay at for two or three days at a time. The only time that a driver feels settled is behind the wheel at highway speed, leaving his fears and frustrations and life behind him in the mirror. It takes some getting used to, I said. Well, you're getting older now, ain't you? He asked. 28, I answered. Damn, O'Malley said. You got a woman? I shook my head no, but didn't say a word, and out of the corner of my eye I saw Jeffrey watching me. I had bought the engagement ring three years ago and had the proposal planned. I got reservations at the kind of place where the tables are clothed in white and lit candles are centered on the table and the lights are dimmed. I wore my best shirt that night, and Lori wore a dress. As the waitress took her order, I quietly took the soft blue velvet box out of my coat pocket and held it in my hands in preparation. But then, she saw him. Lori had worked at the college in the next door town of Fayette for about a year before she came home talking about him. Makina Ardenes had been recruited from Tanzania to play soccer, and he was a star. His skin was a rich, dark black, and he had pearls for teeth. His stature was long and lean, and after he had finished playing, he continued his studies with an academic scholarship and was a Ph.D. candidate teaching in the psychology department. Lori smiled the most bashful grin I had seen since we first met, and I thought I had been found out. Makina, she yelled with cup hands to carry her voice into the bar. He turned around to see her and galloped towards the table. Ah, Lori, he said, and this must be Johnny. I stood to shake his hand, but his eyes never left hers, 
and the hand that he offered to me was a dead fish. Please sit down, Lori said to him. There are only two chairs at the table, Lori's and mine. He swirled the ice in his tumbler and took the last sip of whiskey that remained. He then set it down and took my chair and sat down next to Lori. It's okay if he joins us, right? Turning points in life come in all different forms. Some as abrupt as a truck jackknife, and others are a slow, faint oil leak that can lock up an engine when left unattended. It's the latter that's the most dangerous. It's depression, or lack of self-belief, or a flailing self-confidence that takes down the great myth. Sure, I said as I dug my index finger into my thumb, begging it to bleed. Tonight was nothing special. Their conversation turned me into a third wheel on their date. We had been together for seven years at that point, and it was that night that I felt it began to unravel. The pint glass of beer in front of me was half full, and I finished it in one swallow. When the waitress came, I ordered another, and she motioned towards McKenna's glass. No more for me, he said, looking in my direction. I drink moderately. I had more beers than words, as I passively watched them engage each other in conversation about work and school and the world. She'd flip her hair at McKenna, and I would drink. He would move his strong hand towards hers, and I would drink. They locked eyes, and I would drink some more. After a certain point, I blacked out and woke up in my driveway in the passenger seat of my truck. A black sedan pulled in the parking lot of O'Malley's and a priest stepped out and walked to the door. Jeffrey saw him and hurried to the door and opened it. Father Simon, Jeffrey said, come in and sit down with us. O'Malley rose from his stool and returned to his post behind the counter and the priest sat down next to Jeffrey. How are you this fine day, Jeffrey, he asked. Jeffrey sucked the last of his milkshake from the glass through his straw. Good, he responded. My foot began to bounce beneath me. The presence of a priest made me pick at my wrist. It made the part of myself that I keep hidden shake. It made me remember. And who do we have with you today? The priest asked as he looked in my direction. His eyes caught mine and I looked away. This is my Uncle Johnny, Jeffrey said. Johnny, huh? He said. You must be named after your grandfather. I am, I responded. It skipped a generation, but the name continues. O'Malley stood, perched, and waited for him to order. His gift was to know when to speak and when not to. I'm Simon he said. Simon the priest looked up to see that O'Malley was waiting to take his order. Sorry, O'Malley. I didn't realize you were waiting, Simon the priest said. He took the menu in his hands and pointed the chili cheese dog. The dog, Simon the priest said. Is it pork or beef? Pork, responded O'Malley. And the chili? Simon the priest asked. Vegetarian. I'll take it. O'Malley dutifully returned to his rightful place in front of the griddle took the large dog from the refrigerator and cut it down the middle. He then put it on the cooking surface with the cut side facing up and placed two hefty slices of fresh butter into the seam of the hot dog. With the same knife, he buttered the bun and placed it down to toast. He then took a plastic container of chili out from the freezer and placed it on the cooktop to fry. Simon the priest returned his attention back to me. Johnny, I have come to know your grandfather very well over the last couple months, Simon the priest said. You have? I responded. I never knew that Grandpa had anything to do with the church. Jeffrey perked up and turned the stool towards Simon the priest. Grandpa John's becoming to school too, Jeffrey said. John helps out a lot, Simon the priest responded. At the school and with the duties around the church, he mowed the yard of the school and the church grounds all summer. I had noticed that Grandpa John hadn't been around the shop for some time. He isn't the only one that helps though, said Simon the priest. Jeffrey here has become one of the best altar boys that we have. O'Malley returned to the counter from the griddle with his food. Simon the priest turned the plate around to form a strategy. 
O'Malley's chili cheese dog was special, as it was at least 8 inches long with a half pound of chili and 8 ounces of melted cheese on top. Unsure if he could pick up the dog and keep it intact, he began to cut it with his fork and took his first bite. Only once he understood and admired and chewed O'Malley's chili cheese dog did he swallow it and take a drink of a soda, and then he directed his attention back to me. Did you go to St. Michael's? Yes. Did you get to serve the church by being an altar boy? He asked. I stood up. I hadn't been around a priest since I left St. Michael's school in the 8th grade. I didn't want to think about Jeffrey being an altar boy and having to experience what I had. My eyes went to O'Malley and to Earl and to Jeffrey and finally to Simon the priest. I didn't know which way to run, but it had to be away from the memory or from him. I chose both. Yeah, I was, I said in a hurried manner. And I'm sorry, Jeffrey, but it's time to go. But he just got here, he said, pointing to Simon the Priest. We're leaving, I said, gazing out the glass front door of O'Malley's at this car of Simon the Priest. It belonged to the parish, and it was the same car that Father John had driven. You can see him at school, I said. And I walked out the door, and Jeffrey followed me out.